The Shadow Traps, Episode 40, A Panic of Possibilities. The Shadow Traps, Episode 40, A Panic of Possibilities Let's try and summarise the twists and turns of the previous episode. It's the beginning of 1888 and Le Prince is in Leeds. He's been here since late 1887 and he seems to have shot at least one sequence in the town on the 16 lens camera. He's had several viewing devices built for him here and as a result he's been trying to play back sequences to be seen through a peephole and he's attempted projection and possibly attempted stereoscopic playback. We're not convinced of the success of these devices but certainly something was happening. At the very end of 1887 he appears to have had some kind of eureka moment, which may well be something to do with how to make a one-lens camera. In fact, we made a point that a version of this camera was being built as early as January 1888, which is much earlier than is usually suggested. As well as being busy with playback and switching from a 16 lens to a one-lens camera, there is another significant event the acceptance and publication of his US patent. He therefore achieved some level of protection for his 16 lens machine, but also put himself at risk by putting this design out in the public domain. He therefore wasted no time trying to get patents across Europe to protect his work there too. Now in previous tellings of the Le Prince story, all this, I think, has been simplified so that it all appears to come in neat stages. A 16 lens is made and used in Paris, a one lens in Leeds, and there is work on a projector. Actually, as we've discussed, all this has been staggered, and I think it's all overlapped considerably. There's almost a manic energy to this. Is going from filming on the 16 lens to working on playback to changing to a one lens camera and back to further work rethinking projection. Added to all this, there are the patents and again I think the story has been oversimplified. We might assume that every time a patent is published, Le Prince is a little bit safer. But we know better, don't we? Every time his work was made available in another country before playback had been perfected, Le Prince was opening himself up to potential rivals. I think if there's one thing to appreciate at this point, it's a very range of emotions Le Prince must have been experiencing. A sense of momentum, frustration, progress and risk all occurring at the same time. And in the midst of all this, there are some big decisions being made and I just want to look at one today. The change of focus from 16 lens to 1 and I'd like to try and see if I can understand what was happening. In 
It's a clumsy way of putting it, perhaps, but I think there were mechanical and environmental forces at work in the decision to change tack. By mechanical, I mean Le Prince's own thought processes concerning the technology. He was coming up with ideas, divining new possibilities, becoming interested in new designs. As for the environmental influences, we've touched on some of them in the past. Financial problems, time problems, separation from family, while Le Prince used workshops and expertise in Leeds, and they waited for him in New York. And of course, all of these forces overlapped. We've already mentioned a recent letter from Le Prince to Lizzie, January the 8th, 1888, where Le Prince explained that the roads have finished my test machine and I was preparing to try it when I found the lenses, which had been fixed by Paul at the works, were fixed wrong. That would have necessitated a lot of running around, more expense, more frustration, and I suppose more time needed on the machine, which would ultimately mean more time away from the family. On February the 2nd, 1888, Le Prince wrote to Lizzie, I see with pleasure that you are all well. I hope that you have received my cheques. A few lines to put you au courant with my works. I have succeeded in producing the movement of a man walking, but I still have violent shocks in the machine, and I am working to reduce them. I shall soon arrive. I have satisfied myself that the effect will be absolutely natural, but it is hard going. I believe I could arrive faster, but each step seems to cost an infinity of tests and trials, but also each step confirms me in the assurance of an early success, both excellent and practical. Surely we must pause for a moment to consider what Le Prince is telling us about his sequence of a man walking. He says he produced it, and I take that to mean it has been played back somehow. If it's suffering from violent shocks, then this must be the case, surely? And it's a mark of how little Le Prince has been studied properly that this episode hasn't really been described by biographies, and however significant or successful it was or wasn't, we need to start collecting these details and setting them down on record. But where did this sequence come from? Previously, we had heard of Le Prince in late January writing that he was expecting his new camera soon, and I assume this has to be the one lens camera. I doubt that it would have been finished, delivered, used, and the sequences developed and played back by February the 2nd. Perhaps it did, but I really, really doubt it. So there is a distinct possibility that it was shot on the 16 lens receiver. We've assumed that the sequence shot in Paris on the 16 lens camera of a man walking around a corner was exposed onto a single glass plate, which meant it couldn't be played back. Did he progress from that setup to using strips of photographic paper in the camera once in Leeds? For now, it seems what we can say is that by the 2nd of February 1888, Le Prince had managed some kind of playback of a man walking, but that problems persisted, which would have added to the time, expense and effort his experiments were drawing out of him.
but we can imagine that whatever his progress, there was the pressure of knowing competition was out there and there would have been the pressure of second-guessing what that competition would be doing next. Despite being apparently Le Prince's camera of preference, the idea of the 16 lens was riddled with problems. The parallax effect, for example, caused by shooting from different lenses and therefore from different positions, would have resulted in a jerking around of a subject. This might have been ameliorated a little at least by cropping each frame individually but that would have brought on its own logistical problems. The complex shutter system too would have created another layer of potential issues. In fact that series of photographs of Le Prince's assistant taken in Paris was indeed slightly out of sequence due to the misfiring of shutters. The more lenses you had therefore the greater the risk of one getting damaged and having multiple lenses glass lenses and brass fittings being expensive may have made the construction costly for Le Prince and repair of parts prohibitive for potential customers. It's thought that the 16 lens was important because Le Prince wanted to one day take stereographic sequences and as we've heard from Adolphe previously he might already have attempted it you would need to tweak the shutters so that you took two images, one for each eye. The speed of the camera would have been halved as a consequence, so more problems for Le Prince there, but probably he was ready to work on these problems given time. And a clue that Le Prince may have preferred the 16 lens comes from his eldest daughter, Marie, who in 1929 wrote that Le Prince considered his 16 lens camera the more artistic one. So what we have is the idea that Le Prince was determined to construct some machine that would create moving pictures in relief. We know from his notes in New York that he aimed to sync images with sound and to colour them as well. It's just that little by little he was having to try and scale back his ambitions in the short term in order to create something simpler but more likely to work sooner. And that brings us back to the external factors that may have been influencing his decisions. Lizzie would later write that, From the beginning, he realised that for financial reasons and wide popularity, a one-lens machine was necessary. It's interesting that, retrospectively, we view the one-lens as the more advanced camera because it shot successful sequences, and also without parallax but it was possibly viewed almost as a stopgap measure at the time by Le Prince. Why? Well, in comparison with a 16 lens, a one lens machine was much more practical. Think of the cost of repairs, for example. Now, a one lens machine would, of course, be far cheaper. Consequently, and according to Lizzie, Le Prince's Intention was to put a small one-lens machine on the market to make money with which to carry out his plans of wider range and greater costs. This seems to have been a case of ambition versus pragmatism, just as when he took sound out of the patent. 
and perhaps there was also a psychological need for simplicity whilst grappling with the complexities of projection. Perhaps he needed a project that was simple enough to work in order to help keep his morale up while he struggled with the never-ending problems of playback. Imagine the whirl of progress and frustration and the emptying bank account and the frayed nerves and we start to see the sense in Lizzie's comments about putting out a one lens camera to get something out there to help finance his longer term work with a 16 lens. It's a really pragmatic, commercially astute decision, isn't it? He decided that he needed to get out there and get a slice of the market as soon as possible. But that raises more questions. What market? Who was his competition? And also, critically, was that competition already influencing his work? The idea of motion pictures in 1886 was at once miraculous and inevitable. And if you think about it, it had also been accomplished. If you counted Mybridge's loops of praxiscope sequences, and not just Mybridge, but chronophotographers such as Marais, who captured motion in still photography and were also exploring how to present these images back to people. Moreover, scientists, Jules Dubosc and Sir Charles Wheatstone, had first dreamt of sequences in relief from 1849 and would go on to attempt their own machines years before Le Prince's 16 lens camera. Claudet's stereoscopic animations and the millions of stereographic still photographs that were already around only reinforced the idea that stereographic motion pictures would be possible. And all these things had released into the ether the sense, I think, that something was coming. When we talk about chronophotography, we usually alight upon the names Mybridge and Marais. But to appreciate the depth of the movement towards motion pictures, let's look at a name that's slightly less well-known, but just as interesting. Ottomar Anschutzt was a Prussian photographer who, in 1883, had been commissioned by the Prussian government to record events such as military manoeuvres. To do this, he used a camera with a focal plane shutter that he had designed himself and that worked at up to one thousandths of a second. In late 1885, he began to use a series of cameras fitted with electromagnetic shutter releases which enabled him to take 24 pictures in about three quarters of a second. These images were published in several photographic and scientific journals. However, Anschutzt was about to push his work even further out into the public consciousness when he created the Schnellser, also known as a tachyscope, and sometimes the electro-tachyscope, in 1886. This second apparatus, of which five different versions would be made, contained six sections, each with four lenses, shutters and plates, and although the distance from between the first and last of the 24 lenses was two and a half metres, each four lens section was positioned at a slightly different angle to reduce the parallax effect. It captured a movement cycle of 24 images and around 160 would be made. 
Anschutz's Schnellzer electrotachyscope was shown in Berlin in March 1887 and again in July to August. The bottom line was that Anschutz was demonstrating chronophotography, an animated movement to the public at around the same time that Le Prince was starting to take his shaky, uncertain 16-lens sequences in Paris. But Anstruch's sequences were clearer than Le Prince's. If we are assuming that Le Prince was still exposing 16 images onto a single glass plate, then Anstruch used more images than Le Prince. They were played back on completed devices. They were seen to work. Anstruch had the support of the Prussian government. He was, in short, way ahead of Le Prince on so many levels. The more I think about this, the more Le Prince astounds me. What on earth made him think he could compete? Perhaps because the notion of competing was more nuanced than we think. Although Le Prince seemed outgunned in every direction, perhaps he wasn't. To succeed, he needed to know exactly what it was he was doing. It had to work, had to be ready to be produced, had to be protected, had to do something the others didn't. So what were the others doing? Mybridge gives us a clue. He provided studies of movement and studies were usually conducted in controlled environments. Mybridge's machine was an analytical device. Anschutz also created several series of dancers that were meant for dance instruction and artists. The others, for the most part, were also analysing movement that had been set up to occur within certain constraints. The movement of the subject is rehearsed or controlled. Le Prince, on the other hand, might choose to do different things with the machine. So, for a start, he could break away from these controlled environments. Le Prince, from back when he wrote his 16 lens specification, appreciated the tumultuous nature of filming movement and had explained how his cameras might pan and tilt and focus whilst filming. And let's not forget, chronophotography usually involved capturing a short burst of movement. And animating this usually involved simply playing a second or so's worth of movement over and over in a loop. Le Prince, on the other hand, wanted to shoot for as long as possible, wanted to capture as much life as possible. I think Le Prince had another advantage, and ironically, it's an advantage born out of a disadvantage. He didn't have the resources of someone like Marais or Mybridge, but as a result, he possibly had greater freedom. People like Marais and Anstutzt had briefs, clear, explicit targets in terms of what they wanted to achieve. They then had to construct a machine to fulfil the brief. For Le Prince, the machine was the brief. He could sacrifice stereographic motion pictures, for example, by making a simpler camera, because stereographic images were not a brief set in stone for him. Without a specific scientific imperative, 
he had a flexibility that perhaps the other pioneers didn't. Because there was no one funding him, he could change his target because there was no one to whom he was beholden who might be disappointed by the change. In that respect, at least, he was free. So, Le Prince may have thought that he had a chance to succeed, not because he wanted to beat people to accomplish the same thing as them, but because he felt he would be able to identify a form of motion pictures that had been overlooked. So where was he heading? He was moving towards a single machine built to capture the confusion of unrehearsed reality and to keep filming it for as long as possible. He must have known that despite all the disadvantages he faced, there was so much he could still do. The clock was ticking though. He just needed to be clear about what he wanted to do and get on and do it. He must have been consumed by a panic of possibilities. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Shadow Traps. If you'd like to learn more about the project or to support it in any way, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash The Shadow Traps.